Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Kyle mentioned about the culture, the praying for our kids as they interact with the culture. It's certainly a challenge. We live in a world, do we not, where it seems like everything is topsy-turvy, right and wrong is turned inside out. I mean, you know, think about just the issue of gender and how tenuous that is, or, or marriage that has little or no definition or meaning in our culture. Political leaders continue to turn their back upon God. Racial tensions, terrorism seems to be in the news every day. I mean, we gain nothing by overblowing the situation or by trying to take on some martyr complex. The fact is, sin has always been on the scene, but these days are tough. Uh, In the wake of the 2011 London riots, which included uncontrollable looting and violence, Jonathan Sachs was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying this about the Western world. He said, I quote, the rioters are the victims of the tsunami of wishful thinking that washed across the West, saying that you could have sex without the responsibility of marriage, children without the responsibility of parenthood, social order without the responsibility of citizenship, liberty without the responsibility of morality, and self-esteem without the responsibility of work and earned achievement. What has happened morally in the West is what has happened financially as well. Good and otherwise sensible people were persuaded that you could spend more than you earn, incur debt at unprecedented levels, and consume the world's resources without thinking about who will pay the bill and when. Uh, There are large parts of Britain, Europe, and even the United States where religion is a thing of the past, and there is a counter voice to the culture of buy it, spend it, wear it, flaunt it, because you're worth it. The message is that morality is passé, Conscience is for wimps, and the single overriding command is, Thou shalt not be found out. Hmm. To further illustrate that the crazy train has left the station, the Canadian Supreme Court recently ruled that acts of bestiality are now deemed legal. Living the Christian life within such a world is increasingly challenging. Add to this the inward struggles we have with controlling our inner desires, you know, bitterness, jealousy, lust, anger, a host of other maladies that threaten our relationships and even our own sanity, right? I mean, living a successful Christian life in light of these inner struggles, these outer pressures, it seems almost impossible. Where can we get the power to be a fruitful witness for Christ in a world like this? Isn't it interesting that in the first and second century, Roman leaders were setting Christians on fire and persecution was rampant. And in spite of this kind of climate that Jesus and the New Testament writers were in, they never called for social reform. Isn't that interesting? They didn't lead a political revolution. They didn't even call for a moral crusade. Rather, they set their sights on another kingdom, one where Jesus is king. 
one where spiritual weapons are the tools for battle. I recently met with some community and city leaders in talking about the racial divide in our society. And in our discussion, the idea was posited that the answer is Jesus, who transforms hearts through the gospel, breaks down the walls that divide us. I went to this meeting and took along Steve Williams with me and asked him to come and join me. And uh, in the middle of the meeting, I mean, Steve just, if you know Steve, I mean, he's just going to town. He's giving the gospel. He's quoting scripture. And I'm in my head. I didn't say this. I'm like, down boy. I mean, you're going to come on too strong with, you know, with these city leaders. And then I realized, wait a minute. No, it's exactly what they need to hear because this is who we are. Uh, And so you get us, you get this. Uh, This is a part of the deal. And and you know what they said? Great. And I said, you know, if we're going to be involved in this, you know, the spiritual aspect, we believe, is a critical component. It's not every component. You know, we have the, the social things that we're doing, and that's great. But we believe that this aspect is necessary to break down the dividing wall that separates us because only Jesus, only the gospel can bring people together like that. No social program, no education can do that, but the gospel can. A couple weeks ago, I toured a community center here on the northwest side of town in that zone blitz that Springfield is is targeting to address poverty. And I was seeing firsthand in this in this community center that's run by Christians, how the gospel is transforming a community. My friends, the answer is rooted in the gospel that reconciles us to God, reconciles us to others, conveys the idea that everyone has value, that everyone is created in the image of God and is deserving of of respect and being loved. I'm convinced now more than ever that we as a church have to, have to take the lead in addressing these issues, unashamedly proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. Our mandate is not just to preach and live the gospel and stay out of every social organization or cause, but rather as we are going, as we are stewards of our time, treasure, and talent and what God you know, gives to us and, and whatever we're involved in, that we go as ambassadors of the gospel. That's what we are on earth to do. So really the question is, what is holding us back to make more progress? What is holding us back to being bold witnesses for Jesus Christ and going all out? What is causing many believers to to live out this tepid Christian life? Little power. I mean, many have given up on the church. And others are are so discouraged or so adrift, they don't even want to be identified as Christian. They left evangelicalism a long time ago. They're not sure they want to be called Christian. I mean, when describing the vast majority of American Christianity, abundant and thriving may not be the descriptive words. I believe that our greatest need is an infusion of supernatural, 
God-given, Holy Spirit-induced vitality and power. That's the need of the day. Not the kind that is contrived or forced or only demonstrated in a a three-ring production on Sunday morning, but the kind that is real, authentic, holy, and enduring. Acts 2 introduces us to when the Holy Spirit first began dwelling inside the hearts of people called the church. And we do well to learn from their experiences as we move on through our study of Acts. Let's all stand as we look at our passage. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. I won't take the time to read through verse 13, but you get the gist of what is happening. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, it says, the day of Pentecost. Well, did you know that this is actually a Jewish festival from the Old Testament. In fact, there are three major Jewish festivals that would encourage Jews to come to Jerusalem, the Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles celebrated God's provision for Israel while they were in their wanderings for 40 years. And people lived in booths or tabernacles, but but God provided for them. It was also called the Feast of Booths, and it took place in the fall. Passover was originally commemorating how God had delivered his people from the captivity of the Egyptians. And then it later was to be a picture of how Christ would free us from sin Passover usually lasted a week. Now, Pentecost was to take place seven weeks after Passover or on the seventh Sunday after Passover. And so Passover fell in the middle of April. Therefore, Pentecost fell usually at the beginning of June. Pentecost literally means 50th, signifying it starts 50 days after Passover. Pentecost originally celebrated the giving of the law to God's people on Mount Sinai. Now, it's also called the day of the first fruits or the feast of weeks. First fruits celebrated the the, the produce out of the promised land. The feast of weeks, it was called because it was seven weeks or a week of weeks. Now, if you want, you can refer to Leviticus 22, verses 15 through 22. It provides a a detailed description as to how God wanted them to celebrate Pentecost. Now, it is out of this rich tradition that God uses Pentecost as we might say, the first fruit of the church. It originally was used to celebrate 
the old covenant in the giving of the law on Sinai. Now, Pentecost would be used as a harbinger of a new covenant and fulfill what was told us in Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, some Jews would only stay for the seven days of Passover. Others who visited from out of town would come to Jerusalem and stay until Pentecost. It's estimated that over 100,000 Jews from outside Jerusalem would come into Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. That would basically double the population of Jerusalem. That's why we read later in Acts 6 where the elders called for deacons to be commissioned to help with the dissemination of food and ministering to some of the physical needs of the early church because they were being overrun with these new converts of all these people who had come to Jerusalem and who had begun a relationship with Christ. There's an interesting insight into the word arrived that we find in our first verse here. It literally means in the Greek to be finished or fulfilled. In fact, if you read in your King James Version, it might say fulfilled. The idea is that these events didn't just happen, but rather this was as a result of an eternal appointment, a destiny for this day. The 120, you see, did not meet in the upper room and bring God down to them. Rather, God chose to come down to them, and he did so unexpectedly. That is to say that they did not know how God would do it. They did not know exactly when God would do it. They just knew something would happen, that it would happen. And God, in fact, would leave little doubt that he, in fact, would send his Holy Spirit to indwell in them. Our passage says they were all together in one place. All the different reasons and motives that brought this ragtag group together could have easily kept them separate, attracted them to even go to different places, but they were overcome by the common reason and motive that now brought them together in this one place in an upper room. They find themselves here, close to the temple, and they were promised the Holy Spirit, and they are waiting. Again, not sure how it's going to happen. But I think of all the reasons that people in church today choose to divide And then you read a passage like this, it almost seems rather silly. I mean, I look at 120 people who were together in this place. They were frightened. They were impotent. They were self-centered, willful, discouraged. Christ was gone out of the scene. These were men and women desperately needing a supernatural touch from God. And in times like that where we are desperate, 
We don't want to be like the donkeys that when they're frightened, they face their enemy and then they kick each other. Thoroughbred horses, on the other hand, will face each other and deal with danger. The disciples are gathered here together in one place, facing together what is ahead. The disciples are remembering, I think, a promise that was given in Luke 3. It says this, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. They were indeed desperate for a movement of God in their life. They were desperate because their need was great, right? Jesus was no longer in the picture. What are we going to do? I think when we are so impressed with our need, so sold out to look to God to meet that need, all the reasons that people normally separate are just going to fall to the side. You know, people talk about the style of music, the programs, the facility, the coffee, what people wear, ad infinitum, it goes on. None of that matters when you are desperately waiting and praying for transformation. Imagine the impact of people together in one place praying and expectant of God to move. I mean, there is not a person in here who really shouldn't have that desperate feeling in terms of needing God's movement and power in our lives. Because all of us have felt inadequate in terms of ministry, maybe marriage, a job, a relationship, or just life itself. We feel like we're not cut out to do what is before us. Can God actually infuse in us the power that we need today to live a life as he has asked us to live? Can we expect God to transform us so that we can move beyond our limitations and capacities? I would say a resounding yes to each one of those questions. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The term suddenly emphasizes that the disciples did not orchestrate this movement. I mean, God moved in his time, in his way. Now imagine you're one of the 120. You're expecting the Holy Spirit to come. You don't know how, you don't know when. How are you going to know what happens? How are you going to know that the Holy Spirit is actually now coming and indwelling? God chose to do so audibly, visibly, and through the outward demonstration of inspired speech. In other words, God demonstrated his movement in the spiritual world by manifesting himself in the physical world. The Lord gave outward signs of his presence in tangible ways so that there would be no doubt to the disciples, uh, something's going on here. Right? Uh, I think the Holy Spirit has shown up. 
and he communicated in a way that would be identified immediately. First, it says that there was a sound of a mighty wind. Notice it says the sound of a mighty wind. It doesn't say a wind actually came through. It was just the sound, which would have made it even more supernatural and weirder, if you will. It sounded like wind. And it was so loud, we learn later in the passage, that a crowd gathered near the temple and upper room, which were close together, apparently. Now, we know that wind or breath is often associated with the movement of the Spirit of God. For instance, we read in Ezekiel 37 in a passage where it addresses the dry bones of Israel, an allegory conveying that God would have to infuse life into his people. We read this, So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, and bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. We know that the Spirit of God is promised to God's people, and that wind will accompany that. In John 3, 8, we learn this, that the, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So to the disciples, this connection between the Spirit and the wind was unmistakable. And the sound fills the whole house. So what has arrived is this kind of all-encompassing presence of God. Now, the Holy Spirit had worked through the Old Testament, but there would be something different about his work here. The Holy Spirit would dwell in them now, not just upon them. In addition, the Holy Spirit would come upon them in a permanent fashion, not temporarily. Jesus said to the disciples in John 14, verses 16 and 17, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And the second manifestation is in verse 3. And divided tongues as a fire appeared on them and rested on each one of them. Tongues of fire. Fire often portrays the presence of God. Several times in the Old Testament, God displayed himself in the form of fire. The burning bush in Exodus 3, a fiery torch that was used to communicate to Abram in Genesis 15. God revealed himself as a, as a pillar of fire in the wanderings of his people, the Israelites. And what was happening in Acts 2 was a manifestation that looked like a, a, a tongue wasn't a literal tongue, but it looked like it, but it was a fire that rested upon each person in the room. And to the disciples, this was unmistakable. The fire was a way for a transcendent God to communicate to humans that his spirit, his very presence, has arrived. And it's interesting, I think, that elsewhere, our literal physical tongues 
are actually called a fire from hell when they are used for gossip or jealousy. But here we learn of a fire, a tongue from heaven. So God wanted to communicate to his people that something special was happening. His spirit was now in them. And at times, the Holy Spirit can communicate and convey through visible, audible, touchable manifestations. I mean, in the, in the Old Testament, there was a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire. At uh, Jesus' baptism, there was a dove. In Acts 4, a building shakes. In Acts 6, Stephen's face had, uh, was shining like the face of an angel. In Acts 16, there's an earthquake. And so it seems like, it's almost like God is stooping to give us a, an external demonstration of his presence and power. And then the next sign that we read about is that they spoke in tongues. We'll talk about that next week. It is interesting that there is no record of these three things happening together again in the New Testament. Wind, fire, and tongues. Together. Never does it happen again. I guess the question is this. Why does God move like that with some people and not always like that with us? It's a fair question. The simple answer is this. God is going to do what he pleases. (laughs) That's the simple answer, right? We can't dictate to God how he is going to operate. And I would add this. I don't think we should expect as Christians to replicate the exact details of someone else's experience in our life, including Acts 2, or for that matter, anything else that we read in the the scriptures. I'm talking about the exact details or demonstration. God will work in us. God, I think, will use his supernatural power to use us. But we cannot dictate to God how, we, how he will express himself. God is sovereign and free to do what he likes. Which means I don't want to put a lid on it and say, he can't do this. And neither do I want to dictate what God has to do. Ilyaza Shabazz, who was the third daughter of the late Malcolm X, her mother, Betty Shabazz, would take her kids to the mosque every Sunday. But when they would visit their grandparents in Philadelphia, the grandparents would take them to a Baptist church. And Eliasa said that she loved the singing, the praying, and the testifying. And I quote, I wanted to feel whatever powerful force was causing all these people to sing and clap so heartily. I never did catch the spirit. But I always kept the hope. I never did catch the Spirit. My hope for us is that we'll catch the Spirit. My hope for us is that we will allow the Spirit of God to move in us as he wills. And here's here's the great thing. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you already have the Spirit. The Spirit is in you. The question is, does he have all of you? Is he filling you, controlling you? How will that manifest itself? Well, we know for sure that's going to manifest itself in the character of the Christian, in the fruits of the Spirit. Outside of that, I'm not going to dictate to God how he does it. 
He's free to he's free to heal, he's free not to heal. He's free to have a person speak in tongues, free not to have a person speak in tongues. Uh, he's free to do whatever. What I'm saying is, we're not going to dictate that it's going to look like X. The question is, are we hindering his movement in our life? Are we expectant of his movement? Or have we settled for a, a ho-hum kind of Christianity? I never want to look at Christian A over here and say, i got to look exactly like that. I've already got my example right here. That's what I want to follow. I'm grateful and can praise God for the way he moves in others that may be different than me. I hear of God moving through dreams in the Muslim world of people getting these visions, literally, of Jesus, okay? That was not my salvation experience. Does that mean that mine is less genuine or yours is less genuine? Of course not. And so we can't begin to to compare our spiritual experiences with another thinking that I have to replicate those things exactly. But again, the question is, am I allowing God to move in my life freely, or am I putting a lid on it? Isn't it interesting that at the end of this section that we haven't gotten to yet, some people said they were crazy or drunk. There was so much stuff going on. You know what that says to me? There's going to be opposition. There might be people making fun of even your, your, your boldness or your, or your willingness to testify of Christ or whatever. And I'm not suggesting that you know, we hold up placards and just be jerks for Jesus. I'm just suggesting in, in living out the Christian life, people are going, to, are going to make fun. And some will say, you know what? It's not worth it. <laughs> Listen, if you think that's persecution, you have no idea. Just being made fun of. Right? I mean, we got, we got Christians all around the world. You know, there are more Christians being persecuted today than in any time of human history. People being thrown in jail, tortured, because they believe with all their heart that the gospel is true, that this is something that I'm all in and that I'm, I'm living for another kingdom, not the one that is the, the physical reality that we see here. My point, my friends, is I just don't want us to settle for something less. I want us to welcome the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives as, as he sees fit. Let's pray.